0: This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster.
1: Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you.
0: Hello and welcome to Trashy Divorces, everybody's favorite good podcast about bad relationships, and our season 20 finale. My name is Stacy. Thanks for joining us for today's tale of marital misadventure, Gilded Age style. Alicia, what do you have for us today? Hey, friends, Alicia here.
1: This week I am bringing you the roller coaster world of the Gilded Age chronicler, Edith Wharton. With one trashy divorce, one great love of her life, one trashy affair, and a whole lot full of stories and connected spider webs. So much is packed into this one to enjoy as we head out of the season with all the gratitude to you for making this year over at Trashy Divorces just incredible. Absolutely incredible. Before we kick off this Gilded Age tale, we do have a magic mirror here with some huge thanks to give. With big love to our most recent supporters over at Patreon.com slash Trashy
0: Divorces. Thank you to Carol, Emma M., Ainsley M., Francis M., Nikita M. They're probably not all siblings, but They who are knows? not. All okay. different last names, but a lot of M's Katie, today. Katie W. and Nora B., thank you so much for joining us at Patreon. We really appreciate y'all and all of our magical
1: Patreon people in that community. We have just a few more thanks to give to all of our cheery, trashy elves out there. We have loved your holiday cards and greetings. Our fridge is absolutely decorated now. Christina and Mary and Margo D and Nancy B and her crew. Caroline and Lindsay and Cindy and Chelsea and Photo Boy 2. Rob and Michelle and Amy and Jeremy. Sarah A and Rachel O. Holy cats. I feel like Stacy. I've stashed another stack somewhere around. Friends, if you did not hear your name, I will catch you on our next episode when we return January 10th, 2024. Season 21. Today, though, let's finish strong with the very smart, very intellectual, very Gilded Age icon, Edith Wharton.
0: Let's go, go, go. All right, Alicia, let's talk about the Gilded Age. Oh, the Gilded Age. Pull off your
1: corset, mm. Stacy. Get ready for some spider webs. This one is all the things I like.
0: But it's going to be like hours of untying and loosening. Like, the corsets, man, Not, not good.
1: Go big or go <laughs> home is what I'm saying for this episode. We all might know Edith Wharton as the literary icon who was one of the most celebrated authors of the 20th century. From an insider's perspective, Edith Wharton brilliantly satirized upper-class society during the Gilded Age. During her lifetime, Edith writes 40, 4 books, but is best known for The House of Mirth, Ethan Frome, Summer, and the classic The Age of Innocence. A little fun fact, Edith Wharton was the very first woman to win a Pulitzer Prize. That is a fun fact. That's a trivia night fact. The year was 1921, and the Pulitzer Prize in fiction for her story, The Age of Innocence, about 1870s, upper-class New York
0: Hmm. City
1: society, was the winner of
0: the Pulitzer Prize. Somehow, The Age of Innocence was always about 50 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) I think Don Henley said that, something, Mm -hmm, one of those. mm
1: -hmm. All right, so... The beautiful thing for us, the less beautiful thing for Edith, she was very private in her life and she wanted all of her letters destroyed upon her death so that the world would never have any insight into her personal thoughts and relationships. Delete my account. That's exactly right. She was, she gave orders to please delete my account before you call the authorities Mm -hmm. and, you know, to get my body and that's fine. But unbeknownst to Edith, not all of her correspondence was destroyed. People don't follow directions, Edith. And what surviving letters and documents, luckily for us here at Trashy Divorces, reveal a great deal about this complex and multifaceted woman. Now, a lot of folks assume the phrase the Gilded Age could have been meant as a compliment to the decadence of the time, but that was not at all the case. Mark Twain coined the Gilded Age actually as a derogatory term to show the contrast to the Golden Age. The Gilded Age usually refers to the years of rapid economic growth and industrialization after the Civil War, typically considered 1877 through 1900. I mean, there's buffers yeah, I'm throughout sure. that, but during these years, the American economy nearly doubled in size. The Gilded Age was a time of unprecedented materialism, blatant political corruption, extreme social inequality, Mm -hmm. and incredible greed. Sure. What'd you say about the age of innocence? Yeah. Okay. Mark Twain was pointing out that instead of it being a golden age, it was in fact only masked by a thin gold gilding. It wasn't the real thing it was veneers exactly just had some gold paint on it here's the incredible thing with first hand knowledge edith wharton was able to write about the limitations pressures and privileges of an upper class woman living during this time edith wharton was from a family that had interesting connections but she also has lucky for us fascinating and complicated romantic relationships Hmm. throughout her life. And surprisingly for the era she lived in and her station in life, she also had a pretty trashy divorce. Glad to hear it. Let's talk about Edith, little Edith, who was born Edith Newbold Jones on January 24th, 1862. Aquarius girl born in Manhattan to an established old money family. Her parents were George Frederick Jones and Lucretia Stevens Rhinelander Jones. Both of her parents were descended from American revolutionary families, long respected and accepted into the tight-knit and very controlled high society in New York for generations. Okay. Old money. Old money. Old revolutionary money. They're in with the set. The Joneses make their money mostly through banking and real estate. Summers for the Jones family were spent in Newport, Rhode Island. Mm, Okay. Being built right there is this burgeoning resort village. We talked about this on Done and Done. It really does all come together. Edith Wharton would later have a home in Newport, Rhode Island with her husband. Edith, growing up, though, has two brothers. They were significantly older than she was. Edith was a later-in-life baby. Her parents were a little older than the normal age for the time. Her mother was nearly 40. Hmm. I mean, which is sure, fine, like, sure. but unusual for the time. Yeah. Her papa was already in his 40s. Now, poor little Edith. She has a lot of amago. Or her imago is. Edith was never close to her mom. The two would have had a difficult relationship through her life. Like, I don't know if mom really wanted Edith in the first place. This was like, mom was finally about to break free. Right. Send those kids off to college or whatever. And- Go live her life. And, you know, here comes a baby. Sure. On the flip side of this, Edith is daddy's girl. Mm. Edith's father dotes on her. They have a wonderful relationship. The Civil War comes along and diminishes the wealth of the Jones family. So like some other families we've seen in our journey, uh, Jenny Jerome is who I'm thinking of. Daddy takes the family to Europe. Mostly to spare the embarrassment of having to downgrade their lifestyle, but also the cost of living in Europe was so much less that the family didn't have to diminish their way of life. Oh, gotcha. Right? I mean, these are the families that go over and hang out with Napoleon III and Empress Mm -hmm. Eugenie. They're buying Frederick Worth gowns. Like, we don't have to change anything. We can just take our American money. It's going to go ten times further over here and get out of Dodge for the Civil War. Because of this, Edith's childhood was filled with luxury and travel and culture with those years mostly being spent in France, Germany, and Italy. Good stuff. This will form a lifelong love of Europe and the European ideals in Edith that would cause her to return to Europe again and again and again throughout her life. Sure. The Jones family comes on back to New York in 1872. And Edith gets a new governess. Her name is Anna Catherine Ballman. And Anna Catherine Goodness is a great companion and encourager of Edith. She knows Edith has a brain that can't be stopped. And so her governess encourages Edith's intellectual pursuits and her literary aspirations. Think about how unusual this would be in 1870s. But Anna recognizes Edith's potential and incorporates in her lessons and her governessing a great deal of literature and writing into Edith's curriculum. Edith also has a daddy with a very extensive library. So Edith is just living her best life, spending most of her days reading great works There was one important thing, though, that would trouble Edith for her entire life. It probably troubles her mom. (sighs) Edith isn't pretty. She's not beautiful. She's very smart and very well-read and very clever and very witty and all those things. But in the looks department, Edith wasn't really typically what they would say blessed in the situation at the time. Sure, not a looker. In her world... Growing up at that time, a woman's value was based largely on her beauty. So Edith, last part of the Imago here, spends most of her life feeling very inadequate. Mom doesn't help. Mom is controlling and rigid. And mom is fighting (laughs) with the governess because mom thinks it's all about traditional roles. Edith, you can't read novels. Edith would never forgive her mother. And Edith will use, you know, be careful if you raise a writer, mm, right. different scathing versions of her mother in her novels, which is pretty fun. Hermione Lee, a Wharton biographer, called her fictional descriptions of Mama, quote, one of the most lethal acts of revenge ever taken by a writing daughter, unquote. Hmm. Now, Stacy. This is where the spider webs just get to be too much. This really is a banger of a finale because I got all kinds of stuff loaded in this one. When people compete with each other, you compete with your neighbors, they
0: call that term what? Keeping up with the Joneses. You got oh, it. Oh, and her parents are named Jones. Do you have any idea how that term came into being? I'm going to guess her parents were
1: involved. Uh, her family, not her parents. I can't even wait to tell you all this story. The term keeping up with the Joneses, don't tell you trashy divorces is never full of fun facts, comes from Edith's great-aunts, her aunts. They were mainstays in New York old money society. And the Jones sisters set the standard for all others to aspire to. Keeping up with the Joneses, is keeping up with Edith Wharton's aunts. We got to dig into this a little bit because Edith's great aunt, her name is Mary Mason Jones. She was called the Grand Dom of New York Society. Now, we've been through on Trashy Divorces. We've done it on Done and Done. We've talked about American Dollar Princesses and Alva Vanderbilt. Caroline Astor, no. Mary Mason Jones was them a hundred years before, right? Okay. She, Mary, keeping up with the Joneses Mm -hmm. is Mary Mason Jones. Mary was born in 1801 to the second president of the chemical bank in New York. Mary married Isaac Jones in 1818. Isaac then becomes the third president of chemical
0: bank. I gather this was a lucrative role to hold. It's a lucrative
1: role to hold Sonny Von Bulow's money. Her mother's money was invested in Chemical Bank. Chemical Bank got founded a long time ago Mm -hmm. and it is old family money that's just been cooking for years in Chemical Bank. Mary Jones was the leading hostess in New York society for over 50 years. She and her husband, Isaac, build a new home at 122 Chambers Street, which, okay, whatever, new house. Why are you telling me that? It's the first house in New York City to have both gas and a bathtub. Hmm. I know.
0: I mean, I'm sure that that makes the tub a lot more comfortable. Tub time with hot water. (laughs) Bathtub. Tub time. That's kind of cool. All
1: right, Mary also has a home at 734 Broadway. Now, the cool thing about this house, it's connected as a triple mansion between the homes of Mary and her two sisters, Rebecca and Sarah. So the sisters hired architects to make it possible for each of them to open their drawing rooms onto one another, Hmm. which creates the largest ballroom in New York City. Wow. So long before Mrs. Astor's ballroom mm-hmm. and Ward McAllister and the 400, the Jones sisters'
0: right. largest ballroom in the city. little triplex affair. Holy cats.
1: These three sisters reign supreme over New York society a decade before Mrs. Astor enters the picture. But this was not enough for the pretentious and very superior Mary Mason Jones, she will inherit a large amount of land at fifth Avenue and 57th street Mm. in 1869. Wow. And here Mary decides she's going to build herself a mansion. It is called the Mary Mason Jones mansion (laughs) at that time, 1869. No one fashionable lived that far north. That is not at all where the city was. But Mary Jones was nothing if not a trend setter, and she could tell the city was moving north anyway. And heck, I inherited all this land here. I might as well be the first person of high society to build their Gilded Age mansion on the northern part of Fifth Avenue.
0: She's also fairly elderly by this point and maybe yeah. wanted a quieter place to be, right? Like, Could be. If that was not the happening part of You say quiet. Let's okay. talk about her decadent home. Okay. It was built by, quote, plans of her own, mm.
1: made by an architect from ideas she derived. <laughs> I bet that was fun for the architect. <laughs> from the Chateau de Fontainebleau. Mm. Mm-hmm. French mansions. So, Mary decides to have these marble mansions, I want to tell you, with a plural S, marble mansions, built down the entire block. This was nicknamed Marble Row. Series of just tiny houses then, right? Yep. Uh, Gleaming facades in a city awash in brownstone. This is called Marble Row. Let me just connect a thing. Alva won't build Marble House until 1894. Like, Mary Mason Jones is the trendsetter. Sure. She's the, ah, uh, genesis. Marble Row was completed in 1871, and once Mary moved into her home on the corner, she rented the remaining four mansions to some other folks, but naturally in her approved social circle. Mm-hmm. She made it super clear, Mary Mason did, that none of the new money families would be allowed to sully her block.
0: Of course, of course. Mary Mason's
1: mansion and her entire block's design ended up inspiring much of Fifth Avenue's architecture after that. The Metropolitan Club on 60th used the very same white marble pattern first. Then the Plaza Hotel used... It again in 1907 at Fifth Avenue between 58th and 59th. In the mid 1920s, the old Savoy Plaza Hotel at 58th, across from the Plaza Hotel, borrowed from the Mary Jones Mansion design. Bergdorf Goodman, facing Marble Row at 57th, also used her idea and repeated the theme. Mary Mason Jones has since been called the socialite who built Marble Row and changed the face of Gilded Age 5th Avenue. Her trend certainly caught on because 5th Avenue soon held some of the most prestigious addresses in New York City. It seemed that everyone wanted to keep up with Mrs. Jones. Keep up with the Joneses. Mm -hmm. But was that enough for Mary Mason Jones? Oh, no, I have more. no, No, I got more. In 1883... She builds the Mason apartment houses on East 58th Street. The apartment houses all had one prominent feature, which was an octagonal room that stood at the center of the unit, which she designed herself. It's
0: the groove pit.
1: It reminds me of the apartments on Only Murders in the Building, where you go in and have that octagonal room that sort of... Yeah, Mary Mason Jones. In 1888, the grand dame of New York society herself becomes even wealthier when she inherits one-ninth of her cousin Joshua Jones's $7 million estate. Now, that total, I know, $7 million, whatever, but...
0: Oh, my God, at that time? One-ninth of it, but I mean, still at that time? Seven mil translates
1: to $230 million today. So Mary Mason here gets roughly $25 million to play with. Mary Mason Jones would also be one of the mothers of an American dollar princess. She will exchange her daughter's wealth for a title when her eldest daughter, Mary, becomes the Countess de Trobriand. Mary Mason Jones was such a prominent figure that Edith Wharton would base the character of the high and mighty Mrs. Manson Mingott in her famous book, The Age of Innocence, on her great aunt. just too much. just too much. Mary Jones died in her mansion in 1891. Her corner mansion would be the last of Marble Row to be demolished for newer buildings in 1929. Hmm. There is quite a bit more history in that home before it was demolished. But if you happen to be in New York City on Fifth Avenue and 57th, the Louis Vuitton store is now located where the Mary Jones Mansion was. Can't even stand it. It's so (laughs) good. I'm really, I'm going all out today. Season finale. We're going to do it all. We're going to take a quick break here. Okay. And come back to the focus of the story, Edith. And we're going to talk about her debutante years and a broken engagement. Sounds great.
0: We'll be right back. Hey, Trash Pandas. When you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun.
1: Holy cats, Edith Wharton. In 1878, Edith is 16. She writes a book of poetry. One of her poems is then published in the Atlantic Monthly. Love it. By the end of the next year, when Edith had her official coming-out debutante introduction, she had already had several pieces of her poetry published. Good for her. Edith Jones was presented as a proper debutante in 1879 when she was 17. Edith is considered quite an eligible bachelorette. She's got a ton of cash.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: However, the problem for Edith was that she just did not care. She is not interested in that life or what is
0: expected of her. I see, so it's not just that she was quite plain, let's say. Sure. But also she Didn't had care. she had her own mind and was not interested so much in the in the, the day-rigor mm-hmm. of That stuff. Okay. Yeah, I can see why mom was thrilled. Mom is just
1: unhappy. So Edith is considered strange. (laughs) What? She is studious. She's curious about intellectual things. All she does is sit in her dad's library and read. And I mean, she's a voracious reader. Mm -hmm. And even from the time of her being a young girl, she would make up stories. She prefers to read or quote unquote make up. Like, she would rather be in her own intellectual pursuits yeah. than socialize with her peers. Sure. They just aren't as interesting as what's happening in her brain. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And I'm sure the high society boys were all... or Young, young that. men were all, uh, what's going on? Okay.
1: So even at her debutante ball, Edith would not cooperate with societal standards as well as the expectations of her mother. Edith goes to these balls... And gets asked to dance by boys and she just declines invitation after invitation.
0: And no thank you. mother is pulling her hair out. Edith
1: would later describe herself at the ball as trembling beside her mother in speechless misery. No. Do you want to dance? No. No. <laughs> so her deb season doesn't go yeah. all that great. <laughs> The following year in 1880, Edith's older brother and his wife were finishing their summer home. This is in Bar Harbor, Maine. It is called Reef Point. It is not the Reef Point we've talked about in Newport. Two different Reef Points. Because of this, the older brother finishing the home, Edith and her parents go to Bar Harbor instead of Newport that summer. And that summer, Edith begins a courtship with Henry Layden Stevens. Henry Layden Stevens goes by Harry. And Harry, good for him, is due to inherit an extremely large fortune. He's got a lot of money coming his way, which should be fantastic if you want your plain studious daughter married and handled. But Edith's family does not approve of the Stevens family. Any guesses why? New money. You got it. These people. (laughs) Henry's daddy was an ambitious self-made man. Worked for it. You ready for (laughs) this? Unlike us, his
0: ancestors worked for it. His nickname,
1: uh, Harry, Harry Stevens' father, his father's nickname is the Napoleon of Hotels. Harry's mom was his father's second wife. So, Oh, so much going on there. Oh, my God. Okay, so Henry Stevens Sr., Papa, married new mom after his first wife died. She was 25 years younger,
0: and to boot, she had worked as a maid in one of his hotels. Wow. Yeah. Of course. How dare these interlopers approach our... Refined society set. Yeah, Mrs. Perrin-Stevens was looked
1: down upon, but I need to tell you that Mrs. Perrin-Stevens is about to make one of the biggest social climbs that has ever been witnessed by the world. I promise it really is going to come back around. So, Mrs. Perrin-Stevens, Harry Stevens' mom, who wants to be engaged to Edith Wharton, mama desperately wants to be accepted by who? Who? Mary Mason Jones. But Mary Mason Jones would not receive Mrs. Stevens when she came to visit.
0: Right. She stank of new money. Well, and that's the thing. If you come calling
1: and you leave your card and you're like, yep, not invited. Like, you just, she doesn't even, it's terrible. Mrs. Stevens is so mad. And Mary Mason Jones publicly, publicly says she would never allow, quote, that grocer's daughter, unquote, to enter her home. But Mrs. Stevens is going to have the last laugh. So listen to this. When Henry Stevens Jr., his father dies, Henry Stevens' papa, dead daddy. Now his mom, Mrs. Perrin Stevens, as she is known, her first name is Marietta. Now that she's got husband's cash, she is going to force herself into New York society. She does this in a number of ways. First up, when Mary Mason Jones dies, she purchases her marble mansion. Oh,
0: my God.
1: The one that Marietta wasn't allowed to enter. Right, would
0: not let her uh-huh. into.
1: Wow. And then Marietta sets about dismantling and remodeling it. Oh, wow. And then she decorates it in the most ostentatious and gaudy way that she knew Mary Mason Jones would have detested.
0: She's probably kicking back her heels like... Phew. It's going to be a Louis Vuitton store one day. Now, what's tricky about Marietta Stevens, she did it, quote
1: unquote, by way of Newport, as Emmeline Washburn, Edith's lifelong friend, described it. So what happens is Marietta Stevens manages to impress Ward McAllister with her enthusiastic Newport summer socializing. Once Marietta Stevens had Ward McAllister's approval, she lands on the coveted 400 list. Yeah, the gates open. Finally, Marietta Stevens marries her daughter, her nickname is Minnie, to Lord Arthur Paget, making her Lady Paget. Lord and Lady Paget become close friends and major players in the social set of... London, England. You got it. And Dirty Birdie. Edward the Caresser. Oh. They're big friends with future King of England. Marietta Stevens was pretty scandalous for several reasons, in addition to her modest beginnings and marrying new money. She was very friendly with the controversial Oscar Wilde. He is recorded as attending two of her parties. <laughs> so the old money <laughs> matrons of New York society hate. All of this. They can't stand her. And they do their best to remind Marietta Stevens that she was still beneath them, regardless of her efforts. She ignores them and goes yeah. about her business of making them regret messing with her. In August of 1882, Edith, who this story is about, I promise, becomes engaged to Henry Layden Stevens. But again, families hate this match. Edith's mom, who is quite a snob, feels like the ambitious and new money Stevens family, they were vulgar and just didn't meet the social status needed to marry their daughter. Henry's mom, Marietta has a few concerns as well, though she would have probably been willing to overlook them in order for her son to marry in the Jones family. Marietta feels Edith may not be traditional enough for a wife because she was so curious and intellectual, and Edith was also really unwilling to give up writing when she got married. This engagement announced in August, da, 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 by the fall of 1882, the engagement is off. Oh, wow. The society rag Town and Topics reported on the broken betrothal and said it was due to a quote an alleged preponderance of intellectuality on the part of the intended bride. Unquote. Oh no.
0: A preponderance of intellectuality. Wow, okay. That's something different times. I just yeah, I'm glad. I mean, look, this type of social climbing and blocking and all that, I know it still happens. I like but I'm I'm happy that much of this world has been washed away.
1: Yeah, it's a world I don't know if we'll ever quite experience that way. Well, not that most people experienced it that way. This was a very limited set that lived in this kind of way.
0: A preponderance of intellectualism on the part of the bride. Oh, the intended bride. Well. Mm -hmm. So
1: engagement is off, but I want to just thread this through with one other thing here. In 1883, the following year, Marietta Stevens Mrs. Perrin-Stevens, was invited to the most lavish society party of that year. I don't know if you remember, March 26th, 1883, the day that will live in infamy, is the Vanderbilt Costume Ball. This party, the Vanderbilt Costume Ball legendary, establishes a new social order in New York society. The determined Vanderbilts, which were still considered new money then, like they were breaking into these older families. Right. The Vanderbilts had finally gotten their way. Alva breaks through in her costume ball. She's the toast of fashionable society. The Vanderbilt costume ball marks the end of Mrs. Jones's and Mrs. Astor's dominance and supremacy over. Who was accepted and who was not. And Marietta Stevens was at that ball dressed as Queen Elizabeth. The one. Sorry, Queen Elizabeth II doesn't exist yet. Sure. The original, yeah. the OG. The official portrait of Marietta in her elaborate costume is now owned by the Preservation Society of Newport County. It's too much. I would have liked to have been a fly on the wall for that 1883 Vanderbilt party. That would have been something to see. Let's follow up on Henry Jr. I would like to let you know he never married and will die three years later in 1885.
0: At the young age of 26. Isn't that sad? It's so remarkable, though, that they had fashioned a world where a husband could break an engagement by admitting that his bride-to-be is smarter than him. And that that's a criticism of her. She's just too brainy. Can't handle it. Just unbelievable. Unbelievable. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Sorry for his loss of himself. Yeah. Sorry. I think I'm done with my spiderweb section
1: for a moment. Let's return to Edith and get back into her trashy stuff. In 1882, same year of the broken engagement, Edith's father, her beloved father passes away. That along with Edith being, Over 20 years old now. Spinster. Uh, You got it. Her prospects are waning. Oh, yeah.
0: Just dim, dim, dim. Yeah. I mean, once you're past 20,
1: you're (laughs) over. If you got to 25 without being married, it is nearly impossible to find a suitable husband. Old maid. This meant Edith was experiencing a great deal of societal and family pressure to marry. This is where it gets really fun. Edith's next love interest would be mysterious, haha, and end up being the love of her life, but it would not be the marriage she was told she must have. Breaking convention. His name was Walter Van Rensselaer Barry, and it was 1883, and Edith is 21, and Walter is a young lawyer, and the two spend an idyllic summer together in Bar Harbor, Maine they enjoy outdoor activities together like hiking and canoeing but more importantly they share the same intellectual interests with walter edith could discuss her enthusiasm for books and history and art and writing he quote unquote enlivens her spirit god's a love match so he's not intimidated by the fact no, that she's brainy no baby braining. just say yes In her autobiography, A Backward Glance, written in 1934, Wharton describes their beautiful summer together as, quote, a fleeting hint of what the communion of kindred intelligences might be, unquote.
0: Doesn't that sound great? Why do they not end up married? Mysteriously,
1: Walter leaves after the summer ends without proposing to Edith. Just goes home. Hmm. Over the next 14 years, the two would occasionally stay in touch. But their separation over that time did nothing to diminish Edith's feelings for Walter Berry. This was not the end of their love story. But before we pick that one up again, we're here for trashy divorces. Let's get Edith Newbold Jones married. Edith is going to next meet Teddy Wharton.
0: Hmm. Theodore. Sure. Teddy. Yeah, but the last name seems important. Yeah, well, he's a man from a
1: proper Boston family. Mm-hmm. And on paper, God, Teddy is the guy. He's very suitable. He's an appropriate husband. He's from a good family. He graduates from Harvard. Hmm. He has a trust fund. He seems charming. He's friends with Edith's older brothers. Okay. Teddy was 12 years older than Edith, oh, but Edith okay. is, you know, drying up on the vine and the, you know, idea of being an old maid and also living with your mom because you can't you can't live independently. Like, Edith is just, she's just ready to go. Here, Harry's out. Mm-hmm. Walter mysteriously disappears. Her hopes for love are dashed. Let me just grab onto Teddy. By 1885, Edith, Teddy, Mary. Sure. The marriage was a disaster Uh from the beginning. Edith has zero knowledge about sex. And as the wedding draws closer, Edith gets a little bit more and more anxious by the day, finally breaking down and asking her mother, quote unquote, what marriage was really like in her memoir, a backward glance. Wharton writes that her mother responded with contempt and said, You've seen enough pictures and statues in your life. Haven't you noticed that men are made differently than women? And when Edith shyly said that she had noticed, her mother said, Then for heaven's sakes, don't ask me any more silly questions. You can't be as stupid as you pretend.
0: Wow. So a supportive mom. Joyfully... Preparing her daughter for wedded bliss. Good luck. Excellent. (laughs) Here's a stick. You'll figure it out. People always have.
1: Edith Wharton writes that for the first three weeks of marriage, she remained, quote, ignorant of the processes of generation, unquote. Apparently, around the third week, the marriage was finally consummated. However, less than a month into their marriage their sex life ceased for good. Hmm. So they got married, three weeks in, but less than a month, done. Now, what's even more astonishing to take in after knowing that fact is that Edith and Teddy were married for 28 years before they divorced.
0: Was there no option for divorce? Like, what... Let's talk about it. Let's get into what
1: happens and the rest of the hidden scandal. You wonder why Edith wanted all of her correspondence burned. Okay. Almost immediately after her marriage, Edith's unhappiness manifested into a variety of physical ailments, including asthma, nausea, and depression. The couples spend their summers in Newport and travel, but they don't have anything in common and Edith had not yet become a successful author. She was still a very young woman in the early years of her marriage. And so right now, her primary role is society wife and running a household. And a lot of what Edith enjoys is interior design. This is actually the first book she writes is about interior design. Hmm. In 1897, she will co-author her first book with architect Ogden Codman Jr. I'm getting goosebumps again. I just just my favorite stuff. This book was a nonfiction book called The Decoration of Houses, which becomes the standard in American interior design.
0: Interesting. Now
1: <laughs> Ogden Codman Jr. was an important figure in Gilded Age architecture and design. He is responsible for much of the design in Newport, Rhode Island, Boston, and New York's Upper East Side, as well as some other enclaves. Some of Ogden Codman's most notable designs are the decoration of the Breakers architecture by Richard Morris Hunt on that one, Edith Wharton's Newport home, this is called Land's End, and the interior's of Kaikuit for John D. Rockefeller, the Vanderbilt homes on Fifth Avenue, and Hyde Park. But here's what's cool about Codman. In his later years, he leaves the United States and he's going to spend a lot of his time in France. So for our Trashy Royals listeners, I got a fun follow-up story for y'all. Codman purchases and winters in a place called Villa Leopolda. Villa Leopolda has an incredible history, several famous owners. It was originally built and owned by King Leopold II of Belgium, who builds it for his teenage mistress. Wait for that story on Trashy Royals. It's amazing. Then Villa Leopolda was owned by his nephew, King Albert I. It was used as a military hospital in World War I. Then Ogden Codman Jr. buys the property, redesigns it, rebuilds it into sort of what the estate looks like now. After his death, it was owned by Gianni and Morella Agnelli, hmm, Isaac and Dorothy Killam, and Edmund and Lily Safra. So many (laughs) spiderwebs. There's so much to that story. Okay, back to Edith. In 1901, Edith's mom passes away. Edith gets an inheritance. And when this happens,
0: Edith now can travel to Europe Mm -hmm. way more often. Yeah, much less uh, dependent on her new (laughs) disappointing husband.
1: Well, that's the, you know, primary benefit. But underneath it all, (laughs) her mom's death gives Edith the freedom from her mother. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And... The deeper implication of that, which is society's expectations on Edith. Right. Edith can cast off her yeah. requirements. She and- no
0: longer has mm-hmm. to play that game. Yeah.
1: Edith's mom has never approved of her intellectual interests. She told Edith when she was a kid that a lady does not write. But, hey, goodbye mom. Goodbye to you. Once mama goes, mm-hmm. controlling and disapproving mom, Edith. Type, 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 type. She's going to sit down and begin to write her first novel. The House of Mirth was published in 1905 when Edith was 40 years old. Okay. It is never too late to do what you want to do. Here, we're going to take a break because in the late 1890s, there's some other things that happen, like the return
0: of Walter Berry. Hmm. Back in a minute
1: so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Oh, the story's so good. Okay, in the late 1890s, Walter Berry re-enters Edith's life. Edith Wharton's biographer, R.W.B. Lewis, writes about Walter Berry at the age of 37, returning into Edith Wharton's life and describes him this way, quote, A tall, slender man with a well-trimmed mustache Owning a reputation for urbanity, a range of humanistic learning, and a habit of mildly lewd facetiousness, a persistent gallant and a confirmed bachelor who was much in demand in Washington society. Unquote. Walter Berry and Edith Wharton were connected on and off throughout the remainder of his life. He would give her writing advice they would discuss their common interests and beliefs. They challenge each other intellectually, and in many ways, Edith thinks of Walter Berry as her soulmate. In 1914, the two work in support of France during World War I. In fact, they were among the few foreigners in France who were allowed to travel to the front lines. Edith writes about their war efforts in her short stories. When Walter Berry died in 1927, Edith called him the great love of all my life and wrote to a mutual friend, all my life goes with him. He knew me all through and would see no one else but me. So that's a little sad, but that's okay because Edith, mama passed away. She's released the house of mirth 1901. We're about to have a little bit more fun in Edith's life and affair with William Morton Fullerton Hmm. and, subplot, Edith's sexual awakening. Hmm. Edith meets William Morton Fullerton in 1907. She's 42. Both are Americans in Paris at the time. Fullerton was a staff writer for the Times of London, but he was based in Paris. And here, William Fullerton was educated at Harvard before moving to England, where he was hired at the Times of London. While Fullerton was in London prior to moving to Paris, he becomes an ardent supporter of author Henry James, who happened to be friends with Edith Wharton. When they first met, Wharton described him to a friend as very intelligent, but slightly mysterious, I think. Sparks are flying. Edith Wharton falls in love with William Morton Fullerton, and the two become lovers. She was not his only lover, though. Fullerton was sexually involved with many people, both male and female. He had been married to the opera singer Camille Chabert in 1903, but she divorced him after one year because of all of his affairs. Gotcha. Gotcha. Fullerton comes to visit Edith Wharton at her home called the Mount in the Berkshires in Lenox, Massachusetts. They were also in Paris at the same time. When they're not together, Edith writes to him constantly. Some of her letters were quite erotic in nature. At times, it appears that Wharton is close to being obsessed with Fullerton. He is far more aloof about his feelings for Edith Wharton. Fullerton being somewhat dismissive of his admirers and lovers is a common theme for Fullerton. Author Jenny Fields, who writes a book about Edith Wharton in 2012, tells NPR about William Fullerton. He was very drawn, apparently, to power and success. He had had affairs with other successful people, both men and women. He was something of a sociopath, Because he would have these affairs, and he would just disappear. That was his M.O. Okay. Carrying on their sexual affair, mostly in France, Wharton's biographer, Alfred A. Knopf, wrote, theirs was a discreet adultery. It worked in Paris in a way that it never would have in America. So, Edith always asked William to burn her letters. Please delete my drive but sociopath william edith assumed that fullerton did and so had the rest of the world until 1980 Mm. when 300 letters from edith wharton to william fullerton were discovered and offered for sale oh wow these letters are now owned by the university of texas at austin Many of her biographers believe that Edith's writings, both novels and poems, benefited greatly from her passion for Fullerton. Another Wharton biographer, Irene Goldman Price, explains, she writes letters to him in which she just abases herself and twists herself into a pretzel, promising that I'll be this way or I won't be that way. I can barely read that diary and those letters, but, you know, love is love. (laughs) Mm. I guess I've seen it happen often enough that I'm not terribly surprised. But it's so painful because she's a genius. Right. In the past, when she thought about people in love, there was a sort of cold wall there. You just didn't feel that she really understood it. When she writes The Age of Innocence in 1920... You just get the understanding of love, obsession, and longing that I don't think she understood until she experienced it herself.
0: It is something you have to live through, isn't it? Yeah, you don't know till you know. Yeah, The letters that were discovered
1: so many years later after Edith's death, again, were very erotic in nature and sort of debunk that long-held assumption that Edith Wharton was sexually
0: frigid and emotionally cold. Didn't they kind of tag that to every woman who did interesting (laughs) things in her life? Overwhelming intellectuality. All
1: right. So, for like three years, in her 40s, Edith Wharton had a very passionate affair with William Fullerton. Based on the content of her letters and her journal she was not sexually repressed at all. In fact, she was rather adventurous, even suggesting in a letter that the two meet at the Louvre by the marble sculpture of Diana for a quote-unquote private rendezvous. Hmm. At the end of her affair with William Fullerton, Edith Wharton writes a poem called Terminus. I may do that poem on Dumpster Dive this week. It really is quite extraordinary, but this story has gone on quite long enough. If you want to hear that, look that up. Needless to say, it was an extremely passionate uh, affair. The poem Terminus is... who describes it? It is inspired by Wharton's feelings about Fullerton. It is extremely passionate and highly charged sexually as poems go. Now... Fullerton, already been described as a sociopath, right? You see why Edith is a little, what's the up-down in this, my dude? Fullerton would go from hot to cold with Edith Wharton, leaving her in emotional turmoil every time his mood shifted. He would sometimes write frequently and amorously. Other times, he wouldn't respond to her letters and just openly neglect her. Despite the tumultuous nature of this affair, there is evidence that their sexual relationship lasted at least until late 1910. One of her last romantic letters to him read in part, It is a cruel and capricious amusement. It was not necessary to hurt me thus. I understand something of life. I judged you long ago, and I accepted you as you are, admiring all your gifts and your great charm and seeking only to give you the kind of affection that should help you most and lay the least claim on you in return but one cannot have all of one's passionate tenderness demanded one day and ignored the next Hmm. my life was better before i knew you
0: yikes that
1: is for me the sad conclusion of this sad year and it is a bitter thing to say to the one being one has loved. De more, it's not evermore. Um, this term is a, uh, a damour to love with a all self-giving love is mm-hmm. okay.
0: Yes, to the one being one has loved,
1: such de more. Yeah, that way with an all-giving love. It ends this way. You ready? Uproot, compress, vivify. Yikes. Yeah. Okay. Kept me like a secret and I kept you like an oath. Gah. Anyway, even though the love affair is over with Fullerton and Wharton, the two continue their friendship and a kind of literary advisory relationship long after the sexual dalliance is ended. By 1911, their letters were affectionate, but the sexual content has been removed and most of their correspondence from this point revolves around each's writing and giving each other counsel and feedback on what they were working on. Okay. Okay. There's been a lot going on in this story. Let's take one more quick break to come back to finally after 28 years. (laughs) Get Edith divorced and get around to the trashy divorces part of the story.
0: Okay, yeah, let's do it. Families have a lot going on.
1: We know Edith Wharton's marriage had never been satisfying. It hadn't been great from week three in. After that first month, there is no physical relationship between the two. And as the years progress, it goes from unsatisfying to ugh, right? In the earlier years of their marriage, Edith and Teddy still travel together. But it's not long before Edith begins to take extended trips to Europe again once mom passes away and she's got more money and a little bit more freedom. Yeah. See you in June. Right? Across on the other side of the pond, Edith has an intimate circle of like-minded friends with whom she could share her intellectual and literary and artistic interests that don't think she's too brainy for a girl. Right. Also, she has William Fullerton. Hot and heavy affair. Like, things are great for me when I'm overseas. I can get away with doing whatever I want. I'm happy here.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Teddy Wharton, Edith's husband, remember him? (laughs) Does she? (laughs) On the other hand, he, Teddy, had had several affairs, but none of them were secret or discreet. So, where Edith is kind of on the DL, Teddy is not. Teddy's infidelity probably would have been enough for Edith to divorce him, but it turns out there are a few more reasons. Hmm. Teddy's father died by suicide after suffering from mental illness for some time. Teddy begins to show similar behaviors, and it is obvious that his mental health is declining, it's not good, Teddy begins to act in an erratic way. He becomes very loud. He becomes verbally abusive. Hmm. His doctors attribute this behavior to megalomania, which is a mental illness where people have delusional fantasies. They self aggrandize Yeah, delusions of grandeur, that kind of thing. Teddy has an extremely inflated ego and view of himself. He feels omnipotent at times not a great delusion to Mm -hmm. have today. It is often considered a psychological condition falling under the narcissistic personality disorder category. Henry James, the author and good friend of Edith describes Teddy Wharton this way, noisily and topsy turvily and alas, vulgarly off his poor little head. Oh, wow. (laughs) Now that's, You know, not great, and you definitely want to support, you Mm -hmm. know, mental illness and and good life strategies. But Teddy (sighs) embezzles $50,000 from Edith's trust funds. Oh, my God. And it's not like Teddy's using that money to fund a really expensive rehab somewhere. No, no. That fifty K is to buy his mistress an apartment mm. in Boston. Oh,
0: that's just an expense. She must have been so happy for Edith Warden. Edith not happy.
1: She confronts Teddy about this, and here Teddy will check himself into a sanatorium to get help with his depression and other issues.
0: Was he depressed that he got caught?
1: Yes. Okay. <laughs> Very much so. Okay. Edith was finally ready to end the marriage and files for divorce, but oui, oui, ooh la, la, in a French court. Oh, interesting. She was living in France at the time, and she knew that filing in France would avoid the publicity of her divorcing in the American court system.
0: Interesting.
1: So finally, Teddy and Edith, after 28 years of a loveless marriage, divorce in 1913, and Edith Wharton will never live again in the United States
0: of America. Fascinating. So where does Edith spend the rest
1: of her life, if not in the United States? Come on, guess. I would go with Paris. 100% Paris. Edith officially chooses to live in the city of love in her later years. Paris had always been a liberating place for her. <laughs> and everyone. <laughs> it's such a, It's such a city. She had come to rely on the company of a close circle of friends that she had built. She's got writing comrades. Mm-hmm. These are some of her happiest years.
0: I mean, you're. Yeah.
1: What? Oh, please let's do
0: this. Yes. <laughs> oh, suffer <laughs> my life. me more. I
1: know. <laughs> These are her happiest years. I'm and sure. uh, come on. They were also productive years for Edith Wharton. She will write her Pulitzer Prize winning the Age of Innocence during this time. Edith does stay in Paris during World War I. That's how she does the relief work during the war. But after the war, Edith does begin to feel a little less favorable to the city. She disliked how Paris was changing and how it was filling up with what she called, you ready? Americans Drunk on the Buying Power of the Dollar. Mm. Now, mean, how quickly you forget that that's exactly what your daddy did. Absolutely. In
0: the 1860s, but alas. Yeah, no, it's every, but it's every generation. Like, after a few years, like, you're noticing that people just like you are the new riffraff. Oh, she really, she just, the new riffraff,
1: you're uh-huh. not kidding. She describes it this way. Paris is simply awful. Uh-huh. <laughs> A kind of continuous earthquake of motor buses, trams, lorries, taxis, and other howling and swooping and colliding engines with hundreds and thousands of U.S. citizens
0: rushing about in them. I mean, there's that Dutchman we met when we were in the Netherlands who was like, Well, Amsterdam's kind of an American city now. <laughs> it doesn't take her long. Edith, by 1918, is not going to
1: go far. I mean, you can always get to Paris if you need to, sure. but she will move to the French countryside. Of course she will. <laughs> She's going to remain there for almost going on two decades, just living her blissful little intellectual happy, happy life. On sure. August 11th, 1937, Edith Wharton died of a stroke at her home in sambresa foray. Edith is buried alongside... The great love of all her life. Oh, Mr. Walter, Berry. Mm-hmm, Walter Van Renslayer Berry. Huh. Mm-hmm, in the Legonar Cemetery in Versailles, interesting. France. You wouldn't think that a Gilded Age lady would have quite that, woo salacious, up and down, interesting, curious
0: life. But Edith Wharton, a story that may surprise you. It does not surprise me that she ended up overseas. <laughs>
1: Well, with all the spider webs, I mm-hmm. mean, going back to Mary Mason Jones and, oh gosh, just too much. It's just too much. I love how all these stories interconnect in this trashy divorces ride that we have.
0: That was great and unexpected. And it's so funny that given what she went through, that she would still look back at that lost era 50 years earlier as the Age of Innocence, as something lost. The story remains the same. It does.
1: Is that what they say? Yes. Something like
0: that? Alicia, what what are we doing on trash cans for Edith and Co.?
1: I don't know. It seems like everyone had a fair level of trash can quotient going on. I mean, between Mary Mason Jones and... Marietta Stevens and all the aunts and all the Gilded Age and the Papas and the goodness. (sighs) I think I'm going to just go high levels of Gilded Age trash cans. I think you'd have to have quite a few just to keep up with the Joneses. (laughs) Don't let anybody tell you that people have not been trashy since the beginning of time. True. And I adore it.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for joining us today and spending your time with us. We cannot wait to see you back here on Trashy Divorces for a brand new season of Trash Candy beginning Wednesday, January 10th. Mark your calendar. If you're missing us, don't worry. Over at patreon.com slash trashy divorces, we're going to have some delightful treats coming your way between now and then. And even though Trashy Divorces might be on a little bit of a break, Don't forget,
1: over here at the Trashy Divorces headquarters, we always got something rolling. Mondays, done and done. Every Thursday, Trashy Royals is still going strong. There's always something to delight your trashy hearts through
0: this holiday season. Big love and thank you. We are wishing you the warmest and happiest of days until we meet again in 2024. And
1: until we do that 2024, it just sounds so foreign. We want you
0: to keep your hands clean. Keep your hearts trashy, friends.
1: Big love, everybody. Happy holidays.
0: Happy holidays. Happy New Year. And we will see you in January. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock
1: Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacey and Alicia.
0: You can contact us at TrashyDivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at TrashyDivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at Patreon.com slash TrashyDivorces. Interested in some Trashy
1: Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly.com